it doesn't really matter like how much you can lift. It doesn't matter, you know, whether those numbers sound impressive to other people. It's, it's the accumulation of all of that work. And the fact that you've said to yourself, I am worth this. I'm going to take the time. I am going to work towards something because I want to, not because I'm working towards some aesthetics goal or because I need people to think about me in a particular way. Besharam, Batamese, Chi Chi, Gandhi, Chalhata, Toba Toba, Oho, Bad Betty. I'm Sangeeta Pillai, and this is the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original. This award-winning feminist podcast for and by South Asian women is all about cultural taboos, sex, sexuality, periods, mental health, menopause, nipple hair, shame, and many more taboos. Join me around my virtual kitchen table as I talk with some inspiring women from around the world, exploring what it means to be a South Asian feminist today. The first time I'd heard of Poorna Bell was when I read her book, Chase the Rainbow, all those years ago. I remember how moved I was by the honesty and vulnerability of her book. Chatting with Poorna for Masala Podcast was a wonderful, nurturing experience. Purna is, of course, a brilliant journalist of 19 years, having written for The Times, Grazia, The Guardian, Red Magazine, and The Eye Paper. She's also the author of three non-fiction books, and her latest book, Stronger, won the 2022 Sunday Times Sports Performance Book Award. I loved exploring with Purna the concept of a strong woman, a strong South Asian woman, and what that means. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. So a little bit about me is, um, I mean, I'm an author and a journalist, and also I know we'll get to this, but I'm also an amateur powerlifter, which is um, my favorite hobby and probably one of the only hobbies that has stuck uh, consistently <laughs> throughout my life. I've published three nonfiction books and I am coming out with my debut fiction in a couple of months, which I'm very, very excited about because given the theme of the podcast, you know, it features a South Asian female protagonist. And it was really important for me to write uh, a woman who reflects the people that I know versus sometimes in the past when I've seen caricatures, let's say, of South Asian women depicted. And I would say that my background, I'm Indian, specifically South Indian, which for me is a really important thing to say. And I have lived both in India and in England. So I was born in England. And then when I was about seven years old, my parents decided that it would be a really good idea to relocate back to India. Uh, and we weren't supposed to come back. But I think after about five years of this, my dad just realized that he couldn't really deal with working there because he is a retired doctor. And so we all came back. So I spent um, you know, a lot of my formative years in India and then my entire secondary education in England. That's such an interesting combination, isn't it? So seven to what year? How old were you when you came back? I was 12 when we came back. 12. Wow. So that's like a really crucial time, isn't it? Because thinking back to when I was that age, you're kind of almost forming your identity. So then if you're kind of going between these two dramatically different places, let's face it, 
that must have been quite something. Was it easy to adjust when you came back? No, not at all. Um, I think that um, it was easy to go there because, you know, I was seven when we went there and the experience was predominantly positive, you know, because it was positive reinforcement in terms of, oh my gosh, I go to school and everyone looks like me and I don't feel like I stick out or that there's a part of my identity that just doesn't quite fit in with everyone else. And also, you know, I got uh, the sort of wonderful opportunity to grow up with my cousins, which I don't think we would have had a chance to do had we decided to stay here. And those are relationships, you know, that have um, that have withstood um, a lot of years. And I think that coming back, however, was very different. Um, you know, you're coming into secondary school, which is a difficult age anyway. A lot of the people in secondary school might have known each other previously from having gone to primary school together, and I didn't have that. But also I think for me, and definitely this is the case for, for others, is that that's when definitions around your identity become really heightened and anything that is viewed as being different, especially back then, you know, I think it's easy to forget this now when we, for example, my background is my parents are Hindu. And I think it's very difficult to imagine that we don't celebrate Diwali, but back then we didn't. It was just something we did behind closed doors, you know, or with community members. And we had no community here, basically. So that was a, a really odd experience because I personally just felt like I didn't really fit in anywhere. And because my sister and I had had this different upbringing to other British-born South Asians, we didn't fit in with them here either. My sister, very interestingly, her name is Priya Joy. She is writing a book around motherhood and around this entire period of our lives. So I'm so interested to see this massive part of my identity reflected in her writing because I've never really articulated that part of it before. Yeah, it's really interesting hearing you speak because what you say about never quite fitting in, I never felt that either. So I grew up in India, I spent most of my kind of adult life in India, moved here when I was about 30-something, early 30s. But this feeling of not belonging, when I grew up in India and I was, you know, that is the main mainstream kind of, I look like pretty much everybody else. And I wonder often if that's to do with an internal thing as well. So one is external, obviously, if people don't look like you, you feel like you don't fit. And when I moved to the UK as well, I, I don't feel like I belong. And I've always felt like I am disconnected from the place I'm in. So it's just thinking out loud, you know, something that I've thought about. Tell me, I mean, that's so interesting that you grew up or you spent those years, 7 to 12 in India. Was that in Bangalore for some reason? That I was in Bangalore. Bangalore. Yeah, that's a- yeah, I think one of your posts says Bangalore and that's where I lived for many, many years. So I know Bangalore really well. And then coming back to the UK, where was it that you came back to? So my family are based in Kent and they've been in Kent for pretty much the entire time that they've lived in the UK. Yeah. What changed what are the things that change on a, on a daily basis from your life in Bangalore to your life in Kent? Well, one of the biggest things, which is the case at that age, is school. So, you know, mm. coming from an environment in India where intelligence is something that's respected, where if you do well in school, you know, that's something that other people look up to you for. And then you come to England and you realize, Oh no, those are the people whose heads are getting flushed down the toilet. Like you can't, you can't really display any sort of skill or achievement or signs of intelligence because those are the people that get picked on or bullied, which is, was a horrendous kind of um, adjustment because, 
you are literally having to dim your own light to be able to fit in with the rest of your school friends. And so that was one of the significant differences, you know, food obviously being another one. I mean, I, I, I completely agree with you and I take your point in terms of even if you are living in a country where everyone looks like you, you may not fit in. And I think that, you know, for me, that's why it's it's really important to connect with people who share the same ethics as you and, you know, who, who just resonate your line of thinking, not, not to suggest that people should be in an echo chamber, but I feel that that's a really important part of things. But there are things that, you know, you would not have to think twice about in India, you know, the kind of your mother's food being in the fridge and what if your friends come over, you know, or does your house smell of curry when your friends come over? Um, do your clothes smell like that? Because those are all things that, you, you know, you get picked on for. And then there are other things such as, you know, literally everything, when you turn your TV on, there is no one who looks like you. Bollywood was not on mainstream TV at all back then, let alone, you know, South Asian actors. And so on the one hand, you've got this sort of, uh, this sense of moving about society and there's just nothing that really reflects part of who you are. And even when you do find things in pop culture or, you know, whether that's music or whatever it is, you still, you can, you can love it, you can appreciate it, it can be part of who you are, but it's still a fundamental difference. Um, you're having a different experience than it is for some of your white friends. Those were some of the differences. Also parenting is a huge one, you know, um, culturally we have stricter parents. Like the, the concept that I would leave my house and my parents not know where I was going was something that was just routine for some of my friends. It definitely wasn't for me or just being back home, you know, before it got dark and so on. The one thing I will credit my parents with is that they never really told me what to wear. Like that was always a part of my creativity and self-expression that I was allowed to just do whatever I kind of wanted within, you know, within reason. But that was something I really appreciate because some of the stuff that I used to wear back then, I just think, oh, wow, like, you know, kudos to them for not saying anything because some of it was terrible. So what does identity feel like now? Identity for me feels like honesty um, because one of the things back then was, um, and this is something I've written about, you know, before, was when I was growing up, I had two different accents. So I would have an Indian accent, which I spoke with at home. And then I would have an English accent that I spoke with at school and with my friends. And the English accent came out of necessity because I just needed people to not look at me, you know, like I just crawled out from under a rock, which is what they did in my first week. And I just wanted to be accepted and I wanted to make friends. And I just thought my accent has to go because this is the thing that's like, you know, holding me back. And I feel so sad that I thought that back then, but I hate to say it, it was true because the minute I started talking like them, I was accepted into their friendship circles. But of course that part of me hadn't really caught up with the part of me at home. So I would say back then it was the fear of being found out about things that I shouldn't have had to feel ashamed about or I shouldn't have felt like I needed to hide it. And identity to me now feels like being honest in every single part of my life and being able to be honest with my friends and family about who I am, whatever aspect of that that may take. And so the accent that you hear now is exactly the same accent that I use with my parents. Um, and I don't feel afraid because there isn't this massive part of me that's just locked away, but it also includes being really proud of stuff. So it's not just feeling neutral, it's being really proud that I'm South Indian, that I'm South Asian, 
and um and being open and bold about that and supporting other people who also need that that help and that support you know that's absolutely wonderful i think so many things you said there really resonated with me one was the accent so i do this thing if somebody calls from india my accent becomes more indian same <laughs> like sudden <laughs> and i've done this in offices and they're like do you think you sound really Indian on the phone? And I'm like, yeah, I don't even know I'm doing it. But I guess there's this inherent need to fit in wherever that might be. So if if I'm working in an organization that's English, then I become more English. You know, I'm in a meeting and I want to sound like I fit. It's just bizarre. And even on the phone, like it used to always make me laugh. Like, why is my accent changing on the phone? But yeah, I guess the bigger point is that trying to fit in. And what you said, the other thing that that made me really sad, it's like some parts of you that are very much a part of you need to be hidden in order to fit within the broader culture. I mean, that's so sad, right? It's incredibly sad. I mean, I think that, you know, it's difficult to articulate some of this stuff to my peers, especially my white peers, because you're articulating stuff that you you feel desperately sad about, but that you can't change. But that still inform the person that you are today. So, you know, when people wonder... And I don't know if you've had the same thing when people wonder why we feel so passionately about things, like why we are so vocal and outspoken about things. It's because there was a really fundamental time where we didn't feel that we could be like that. And we were definitely not alone in that experience. You know, the, the we talk to people, that's part of both of our jobs. And the more you talk to people, the more you realize how common this was an experience. And I hold a lot of sadness around that. But at the same time, I'm not going to sit in that. I'm going to use that to try and make things a little bit different or to be outspoken or to try and kind of even that balance out a little bit. But I, I don't know what to do with some of the regret of that, because I also know that some of that behavior came from a place of wanting to survive and, and being okay and, you know, having friends and having a full life. And I did have that to an extent. It's just a real shame that it had to come, you know, at a cost of sequestering off a, a really important part of myself, I think. Absolutely. And I think things like, you know, when you were talking, I was thinking of food, there was, I first remember coming to the UK and I was working at this job. And I made some prawn curry and rice, I think, and I was going to take it to work. And I remember the people we we were staying with at that point, my ex and I, you're going to smell up the office, are you? And I'm like, it had never occurred to me that the food I eat would be considered smelling anything up. I was like, but that's just food mm. and my food. And I remember feeling a little bit like that, that sense of shame that starts in your stomach. And you're like, oh, God, you know, the thing I am. And that's such a part of me is going to smell something up. You know, especially food for us isn't just food. Yes. F food for us. Exactly. Those people, when they're saying that they insult us, they insult our mothers, they insult our entire family. And I don't mean that to sound in such a like mafioso way, <laughs> but it's, it's true. I mean, you know, it, it goes beyond yeah. just I'm insulting your lunch or your dinner, right? And that feels like such a huge thing. And, and that's what I mean about that, you know, people not understanding and not understanding where some of our behavior comes from is from experiences like that, from, you know, watching a lot of American TV where that's used as a punchline in jokes, like Indian food or South Asian food having a strong smell is used as a punchline, you know? 
that's a really hard thing. Then yeah. in your present day, have people who are really excited about it, who, who want to tell you how much they like Indian food or good God, like the number of like men that I've dated who want to tell me about the curry that they've cooked. Like these are like, let's say white men. And I'm like, I mean, good for you, but I, I just don't really want to hear it. It doesn't mean anything to me because there is this part of myself that was deeply insulted <laughs> yeah. around it. And I still yeah. don't feel 100% okay about yeah. that, you know? Tell me, um, what are the bits of South Asian culture that really resonate with you? Food, I'm sure we could talk about food for the whole podcast. What else? What are the bits that that make you happy, that make you feel like part of that identity? The biggest thing probably is how hospitable we are. Definitely that, you know, the fact that I would say this is part of my Indian identity because I feel like in India, it's just things are more fluid and they're less intense and you don't have to book something in with someone, you know, five to 10 weeks in advance. And in terms of socializing, I just find the pace of it a lot easier to deal with than here where everything, you know, in the UK where everything needs to be so ordered and structured. But I like the fact that you could just invite someone over to your house and it not be, you know, this big deal. I like the fact that we make a lot of food so that, you know, it's not about having, um, you know, a set number of, I don't know, fish fingers or whatever per plate. I like the fact that I feel like, you know, that the parts of us that really love music and dance and color and sound and conversations with each other about lots of different things. And I think the thing that this doesn't make me sad, it's just that I wish it was just better represented are those conversations that, you know, I will have with my other like Indian friends that I and the things that we talk about and the topics that we dissect versus what I see, you know, in scripts on TV, which just doesn't seem to reflect the kind of people that we are. I feel like I'm looking at an experience that is happening to someone else rather than going, oh my gosh, that's exactly like it is for us. What is my cultural identity? I've spent most of my life in India, and that is a huge part of who I am. But I've also spent almost two decades in the UK decades where I really grew into the woman that I am today. What's weird is that moving to the UK allowed me to really own my strong feminist Indian woman side. I had to move all the way here to really own my Indianness. Isn't that strange and wonderful? Most of the time, My Indian side and my British side coexist happily. Not always though. The Indian Sangeeta likes the warm informality of just popping over to see a friend for tea. I miss the ease of making connections and forming a community like I did in India. The British Sangeeta, however, finds going back to India really chaotic. On my last trip there, I found myself tutting at people not forming an orderly queue at the supermarket, which made me laugh at myself. So I suppose my two cultural identities are now fused and sometimes a bit confused. But you know what? That's okay.
let's talk a little bit more about the sporty side of things. Were you sporty, athletic, any of that when you were growing up? So the answer is no, um, but it's an interesting one because when I was in India, I wouldn't say I was, I mean, I never was athletic as a child. And I don't know if I would describe myself as sporty, but I definitely was active, you know, and whether that was riding your bikes around, playing with friends, just sort of, you know, having a lot of fun just moving around. And that was that was a really fond memory from that time. But I definitely remember being in secondary school when we moved back to England and I just hated it because, you know, the majority of how you're taught sport in school, at least in England, I'm not so sure about India, is that it's competitive sport. And if you are not particularly good at it, your teachers don't really have any interest in developing you further than that. And also, I just feel like the way we were taught about sport is that, you know, they showed you how to do something once and then you were expected to just go off on your own and do it. I mean, I'm talking about things like javelin, for example, you know, wow. which is <laughs> crazy when you think that you're giving like that kind of um, implement to a 13 or a 14 year old or doing things like rope climb, which is something, you know, that I talk about in Stronger, the book that I wrote about all of this stuff around physical activity which is that you know we were we were told okay for your assessment do rope climb and and just how on earth would you be able to do that as a child because you have like no upper body strength so I definitely was not and I really didn't like um, sport at all at school and that kind of continued into my 20s where yes I did join a gym but I can't say I really gave it much thought beyond you know kind of huffing away on a cross trainer or doing some work on the treadmill and I guess it's also, I don't know if this was your experience, but for me growing up, it was very much that the men were the kind of sporty type. They were encouraged to kind of play sport or be physically strong or active. And as women, we were told that we were the opposite of that in many ways. It's like, you're, well, you're the one who has to wait for the man to do the whatever. Or you can't open a jar and you immediately get a man to open the jar. You know, it's that kind of conditioning almost. Did you get any of that when you were growing up or was that not the case for you? I mean, I definitely grew up with the conditioning that, you know, men were sportier and, mm. you know, my dad was a weightlifter and it was definitely something that was mentioned, you know, at home or with extended family. But I don't remember the other men around him doing the same. You know, it was always something that was picked out as something that he specifically did. So I didn't grow up with that kind of conditioning, but but for sure, you know, when I grew up and I was a bit older, I didn't really, it wasn't so much that it was like, oh, you need to wait for the man to, to do this or to do that. I don't think it was as overt as that, but I ne neither did I think that uh, there was anything wrong with this expectation or this understanding, you know, that men just did like heavy lifting or men men were the stronger ones by default or any of that stuff. Like, I think I just took that as a given you know so when it came to to needing to confront that and needing to confront the idea of but hang on I'm a feminist and I believe in equality but yet I also expected my husband to take out the bins because that's what men and then I, I had to unravel it that way and I was like oh yeah 
I believed that there were men's jobs and women's jobs. And if I believe that there are men's jobs, then yes, there are women's jobs. And that doesn't sit right with me because, okay, so when we unravel that, what are women's jobs? And if women's jobs are cooking and cleaning, then that person can just go to hell because I don't believe in that. <laughs> and, um, and that's absolute rubbish. But it was it was shocking to me, Sangeeta, how I did not really connect those dots and go, oh my God, like I've been pushing for equality, for dismantling of like gender stereotypes around one thing at the same time as fundamentally believing this other thing that supports those stereotypes. That was mind blowing to me. No, I think so many of us, we carry this stuff because it's all subconscious, isn't it? We're growing up, we're absorbing this information, whether that's family, media, books, whatever. And what's being fed to us is the same thing that you're this as a woman or a man and you can't be that. So obviously we're going to pick that up. So let's talk about the thing I'm really fascinated about, Purna the power lifter. <laughs> <laughs> How did that start? Um, I mean, that was, that was a slow journey. So I had, I had started to dabble in learning how to lift weights because I, I just didn't know how to do any of that before. So that would be, you know, just learning how to lift a barbell and so on. And I, and I had a personal trainer who, who just helped me with that. And that was a very, very different way of training that I had done before, which before it was always, you know, oh, I need to lose X amount of weight or whatever. And this, with this type of training, it was, I actually just need to get stronger. And so that's what I had been doing for a couple of years. I went traveling. And then when I came back, I needed to get a new PT because, you know, I'd quit my job. I was in a different area and um, started to train with him, you know, and I'd notice when I go into the weight section, you know, there, there was never really any women in that section and it was fine. It was okay. But I would just keep myself to myself and just go in there and just leave, you know, the minute my, my session was done. And one day when I was in there, this guy came up to me and started talking to me. And I'm really like, um, how would my dad describe it? Territorial and aggressive. <laughs> I don't think that's true. It's just that I don't have a very approachable face in that section of the gym because I don't want guys to start talking to me in that section, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. who does? And this guy came and, and started talking to me and I just thought, oh God, I just go away. Um, but he actually said, we've got this powerlifting competition that's come up and it would be really nice to get women to be part of it because that might encourage other women and that was the thing that made me actually pay attention to him I think if he had worded it in any other way I'd have just said no this like I don't even know what powerlifting is go away but I just thought oh okay well you know what actually it would be really nice to see more women in the weight section and yeah that would be a great thing to do but the idea of it still absolutely terrified me. And then it so happened again by like coincidence that the my personal trainer, who is my um, my coach, his name is Jack. He is actually a professional powerlifter. And he, he said, um, I actually think it would be a really good thing for you to try. You know, it's, you might really enjoy it, might have some fun with it. And then the rest is history. Like, I, I just remember thinking, I don't know what Jack's idea of fun is, but this doesn't sound fun. <laughs> and it turns out that... It, it was so much fun and it connected me to a whole different community. And for the first time, I think in my life, I actually really enjoyed going to the gym and it wasn't something that was just about, oh, I need to like manage my weight or I need to do this or I need to do that. It was just about, am I having fun while lifting weights? Am I getting stronger every week? And then that was it really. So what does it feel like? Tell me 
to lift that kind of weight? What does that feel like in the body and in the mind? I think that when I'm actually doing it, I mean, that that can depend. So when I'm actually doing it, I can either feel like I'm having the best day of my life. And if I don't know, I'm tired or it's just not going my way, the mental load or like having to like psych yourself up to do those lifts can take a lot because you have to, I'm really glad I got a couple of my friends to try it because it was really important to me that they understood that this wasn't just about what you're doing physically, that the the mental um, load that's attached to it in terms of having to psych yourself up to do it is, is immense, right? But the thing is, is that all of that effort and all of that will counts towards something. And what that counts towards is how you feel when you are outside of that gym. And that could include like walking down the street, going into a meeting, you know, being on a packed train, any one of those things. And it feels like a superpower. It's not something that's an aggressive kind of energy. You know, it's not like a a sense of superiority or anything like that. It's more just the understanding of the amount of work that you have put into yourself in a really positive and healthy way. And when I say healthy, I'm not talking about physical health. I'm talking about mental health here. It doesn't really matter like how much you can lift. It doesn't matter, you know, whether those numbers sound impressive to other people. It's it's the accumulation of all of that work and the fact that you've said to yourself, I am worth this. I'm going to take the time. I am going to work towards something because I want to, not because I'm working towards some aesthetics goal or because I need people to think about me in a particular way. And that level of self-worth, Sangeeta, the self-confidence that that gives you, because it's not a thing that can be taken away from you because you have literally gone in there day after day and created that yourself. But that level of self-confidence is, it feels like titanium. Like it feels like no one can kind of like move you from that point. And I'm immensely grateful to have found it because I spent a lot of my life, the majority of my life, not feeling like that. So the fact that I managed to discover it in my late 30s and now I'm in my early 40s, I'm immeasurably grateful for that. Sounds incredibly powerful how you describe it. Like walking with the superpower almost, you know, that, that sounds amazing. That must help emotionally a lot as well, right? So not only are you stronger physically, I guess I'm, I'm guessing you stand up stronger in the world and you take up space more in the world, but also emotionally, that must be really, really, I guess, grounding in a way. It's enormously grounding. I mean, if you speak to any powerlifter who will be able to talk to you and bore you to death about this for hours and hours on end, because we love talking about it, it is the thing that is such a metaphor for life, you know, so powerlifting for people that don't know, involves three lifts, which is squatting with a barbell on your back, deadlifts where you're picking something up and bench press where you're pushing something off your chest. And all of those movements are are metaphors for, you know, when something weighs you down, when something seems like a burden, when it feels like the load is really, really heavy, you can carry it and you can lift it. And that is absolutely true. That is, it sounds so cheesy but that is absolutely transferable to how you deal with things in life because life isn't about always succeeding all the time, you know, like in the same way that you might go into a training session and fail because you might not lift the thing that you were intending to do. 
it teaches you that failure isn't something to be feared. It teaches you that actually that failure is going to teach you something the next time you attempt something else. And it's an opportunity to try something else rather than going, you know what? No, no, no. I failed that. I didn't get that right. I'm not going to try it again, which I've definitely felt a lot during my life where, where something has scared me or I just thought I didn't I didn't get it right the first time around, so I'm not going to try it again. It shows you that actually development and skill and learning takes a really, really long time. And it takes a lot of humility. Like it takes a lot of humility to go, you know what? I didn't get it right that first time, but I'm going to go back. And even if I fail like 10 more times, I'm just going to keep trying until I get it right. Wow, that's that's really amazing. How do other people respond to you powerlifting? Men, women, how do they respond to you? In the beginning, I got a lot of quote marks advice from men about how I needed to be careful and loads of like injury stories and this happened to my back or whatever. And then when I kind of unraveled it a little bit and said, okay, so thanks for the advice. Can I just ask, how did you learn how to lift? And in all of those cases, they didn't. They did that thing where they went into a gym and they were too proud to ask someone for help. And so they kind of taught themselves, and this is in an era before YouTube, by the way, you know, before we have this like massive access to all this information. So the people who had injured themselves, who were trying to give me advice about this, were not coached. They didn't have any professional help. I'm doing this and I have always done this with a coach. So th what I realized was that we aren't trained, even though they may do weights in a gym, we don't train the same way, you know? And I think that when you train in a way that makes you an athlete, it's a very different type of training than I'm going to go to the gym to do a workout. And that's not to like, you know, that sounds a bit snobby on my part. I don't mean that at all. I just mean we all have different ways of training. So the people that I'm going to take advice from are the people who train in the same way as me. I think initially it did take a, a few people a bit of adjustment uh, because my physique looks different. It doesn't necessarily maybe look dramatically different, but the proportions of it, I've got like, you know, a weightlifter's body. But people just don't say anything now because I think that they know that this isn't a phase. They know that I'm going to keep doing it. But also in a really nice way, actually, I'm achieving something. So I'm working towards something and I'm bettering myself. And even if you are the most cynical person, there's not really much anyone can say around that because I'm the one who has been going to the gym and training and competing, you know, several times a week. I compete twice a year. So for someone who might go to the gym like three times a week and d does their own thing or doesn't train in the same way, I think that after a while, they just know that there's not really much that they can say to me about that. So I haven't really had really any comments in the last year. And I think after having, I had long COVID for about 10 months in 2020. So I think anyone who really knows me is just really happy for me because I'm back to normal and I've been training for about a year. I'd love to talk about women and the ideas of strength and the ideas of, you know, we're always taught about like emotional strength, but nobody really talks about physical strength with women. And I don't think from what I know, girls are encouraged to be strong, really young girls and then growing up to be women. In fact, it's the opposite where we're constantly told to hate our own bodies, to be managing our bodies, to be managing our dad is this thing that must be kept under control. And it must be this particular weight and look this particular way. Has your idea of your kind of relationship with your body changed since since you've been powerlifting? 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, we talked a little bit about me growing up in India and me having my Indian family. I would say that as much as I love India and as much as I love my extended family there, being part of that specific culture around your body image was really difficult as a teenager. And it's difficult because, as you know, I'm sure, it is the first thing that people comment on when they haven't seen you for a while. And so it makes you so hyper aware, you know, before you are in the company of people. Like before we used to go, so after we moved back to England, you know, we'd go back to India periodically. And I just remember thinking, almost like dreading the moment when I knew that my body would be commented on. And I think I realized, you know, somewhere maybe a few years ago where I just realized that it didn't matter what size it was, whether it was, you know, ridiculously skinny or, you know, whether I put on weight or whatever, there was always just going to be a comment about it. And when I think back to when, you know, people would say I'd put on weight or something and I was like a size eight, which is incredible that they would find that to, to say about my, my body. I just realized, I think that, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It, their opinion doesn't matter because their opinion will not kickstart anything positive in my life. All it will do is make me feel bad about myself. And I think the thing I will always be grateful to powerlifting is that it liberated me from that, basically. If my body is used for, if it has a purpose, you know, if it has a sense of achievement about it, if I am moving it in a way that makes me feel good, then what someone else has to say about it is the least of, of my priorities or importance, you know? And this idea, you know, sometimes when I've said this to other South Asians, they're like, oh, you know, but, but don't aren't we being like irresponsible by not saying anything? This isn't specific to me. This is like commenting on someone else's body. You know, if they feel that that person needs to lose weight or whatever. And I said, it's none of your business. And also if you care so much about it, maybe read some of the studies around this kind of stuff. And you'll find that never in the history of people deciding to voice an opinion about someone else's body, was that the thing that, you know, kickstarted whatever you you're saying this like healthy, you know, lifestyle needs to be like that. Such a fundamental pillar of stronger and writing it is to demonstrate that shaming other people and more importantly, bending them to our ideas of what we think is healthy, what we think is, you know, fitness should look like whatever. None of that is substantiated or corroborated by science, you know, and it doesn't work on people, you know, it's not a good motivator. So I think for me, my relationship with my body now is I feel neutral about it. There are days when I look at it and I'm like, damn, okay, you look great. There are days when I think, oh God, like I don't really want to look at myself in the mirror and that's okay because the days that I love my body and that I feel neutral about it is that those would grossly outweigh the days when I don't feel good about it. And that has taken a lot of work and a lot of releasing other people's expectations and opinions around it. And it's not just other people. So within South Asian culture, as we've said, there's the aunties or whoever's commenting on, on your body. But outside of that, there's also kind of media, social media. There's It's so, like, I think about this a lot. There's so much kind of policing of our bodies. It's almost like the power of our bodies belongs to, it's an external thing, like other people are telling us. 
and there's so much that gets attached to how thin we are or big we are or whatever we are and it's totally disproportionate like I don't think men experience that to the degree that we do as women and I don't even know how one starts to change that or even challenge that you know I mean I would say that there's a couple of things possibly or rather maybe I could say the things that that helped me I think one of the things that really helped was um I think tackling my approach to food for example um and a lot of that was around unraveling some of the diet culture stuff which is fairly inescapable right if you if you live in society it is so just not feeling restricted around food feel like understanding that food is a fuel that keeps me alive and sort of reclaiming some of the joy in that rather than always like you know viewing it through a lens of restriction means that i moderate a lot better now so you know i don't feel that i need to i don't know eat something and feel guilty about it afterwards i don't i don't really feel guilty after eating anything and that that took quite a lot of work but definitely with regards to being south asian you know i mean I think a big part of it comes from representation in media, representation in social media and definitely you know I do a lot of work in the fitness space and there are body sizes for example fitness influencers that a lot of south asian women are just not built like that you know we have different genetics around certain things and I think that it when I sort of sat down and thought about it and even like down to you know clothes for example and clothes not having not being able to fit your bum properly and all of that kind of stuff and I just was like actually but that's not a me problem that's a you problem like that's that's a retailer's issue you know and and so for for me I've curated number one the places that I buy my clothes from so I have like a fixed number of places that I will go to that I know will produce clothes that fit my frame and make me feel good about it the other thing is it sounds so simple is that I wear clothes that fit me rather than wearing clothes that are slightly too tight or make me feel bad about myself because if they're not comfortable I am just not going to want to wear them and the final thing is in the same way that yes absolutely social media can be a generator for negative self-esteem and so on it can be such a massively positive space for us connecting and us seeing images that make us feel good about ourselves and i would say very specifically to do with south asian women instagram for example has been a game changer for me just to see these gorgeous beautiful women of all ages all shapes all sizes all skin colors in a way that is not represented in bollywood is not represented in the mainstream but here these amazing women are who are carving out their spaces yes some of their followings may not be anywhere near you know the mainstream influencers or whatever but that doesn't matter because they're doing their own thing and they're being authentic and true to who they are and i look at their body sizes and i think my body looks like that you know yeah that's that's the community that i'm kind of connecting with and also just seeing other body sizes that don't look like my own but that might have you know might be another south asian woman i think are really really important to just building up this idea that we're not a homogenous lump as a demographic we are full of very vibrant different um women of all kind of abilities and intersections and i think that that's a really important thing to remember because growing up especially at university 
I thought that there was like one type of South Asian woman and I did not look like her and I was not like her and I just felt like I didn't fit in anywhere. And now at the grand old age of 41, I finally do feel like that. I'm growing older and my body is changing shape. My body in my 40s is not like my body in my 20s. I can no longer fit into those size 8 or size 10 jeans. And I've always wondered, why are we made to feel like the size of our genes should be equal to the size of our self-esteem? I've always had the big hips of a South Indian woman from Kerala, which frankly, I've always loved. Sexy silk saris need luscious swaying hips. Going from the hips that I love to the belly that's harder for me to love. I'm perimenopausal, so now my belly has grown a whole lot bigger. It was easy to love the cute little belly of my 20s. It's so much harder to love this big hormonal belly that juts out of the waistband of my jeans and wobbles out of my tights when I'm wearing dresses. As women, we're all exposed to endless images of slim young bodies on our TV screens, in our magazines, and even on our social media. How do we show love to those parts of our bodies that don't fit the accepted notions of desirability and beauty? I'm learning slowly to show my belly some love. Sometimes I place my hand on my belly, feeling all the folds and the wobbles. And I let my hand stay on my belly, letting some of that warmth and love flow through. Feeling love for my belly is very much a work in progress, but I'm getting there. What projects have you got coming up? You were talking about your new book. Yeah, so I, my fiction is the main, main thing. That is coming out on the 7th of July. And Ooh. any support <laughs> or help uh, people listening uh, can give around it, whether that's ordering it on pre-order or when it comes out in the bookshops would be great because I think that it will hopefully speak to a lot of people. And I just feel like, there are some incredible South Asian female writers who are already writing in the commercial fiction space. And I just think that this is a really joyous, funny, life-affirming edition. It's called In Case of Emergency. <laughs> Love the sound of that. Thank you so much, Purna. It's been an absolute joy talking to you. Thank you, Sangeeta. I'm Sangeeta Pillai. Thank you for listening to Masala Podcast, a Spotify original. Masala Podcast is part of my platform, Soul Sutras. What's that all about? Soul Sutras is a network for South Asian women, a safe space to tell our stories, to hear inspiring South Asian women challenging patriarchy, a space to be exactly the people we want to be and still feel like we belong in our culture and our community, and ultimately, a space where we feel less alone. I'd love to hear from you, so do get in touch 
via email at soulsutras.co.uk or go to my website, soulsutras.co.uk. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Just look for Soul Sutras. Masala Podcast was created and presented by me, Sangeeta Pillai, produced by Anushka Tate, opening music by Sunny Robertson. Besharam, Batamiz, Gandhi, Hi Hi, Bad Betty.